book of Esther. Oh, I'm sorry, kids, you can go to your thing here. I was so caught up in the music. Kids can be dismissed. Yeah, go ahead. That's right. You're down there. Yeah. Put him in that crib. I want to see him with a little hat on with a bottle in his mouth. By the way, if you don't have a Bible here this morning, I forgot to say this. We have Bibles back there that you can use or you can really keep them if you don't own a Bible. Just John Hill's back there someplace right here. If John, you need a Bible, just throw something at John here. We'll get you a Bible. Uh, but uh, we want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God because we just enjoy the Bible around here. We're not much on tradition, frills, or frolic, but we do take the Bible real seriously, and uh, we're excited about excited about that. But anyway, uh, as you know, we have been coming through every book of the Bible, and I have been laying out for you how those books all fit together. And uh, I've been trying to give you a cohesive understanding of the Word of God so that, you know, a year from now, when we begin to really launch into some things into the Bible, that you really have a, a foundation. I, I want you to know the Bible. I've got to tell you this, too. I, you know, it's, it's the, the highlight of my week. I all, you know, it, it changes from time to time. But, uh, you know, I think I enjoy more than anything else that I'm doing right now is get to spend the one-on-one with you guys in the Bible. As I told you, when we started our church, that I would spend an hour a week with anybody at all that wanted to learn the Bible, showing you how to do it. And uh, I have just had a great time going through the Bible with you folks, you know, one-on-one, little small little groups, and uh, husband and wives, and wow, it's been great. I get to see your growth, I get to see the excitement in your eyes about the Word of God, and to me that's, uh, that's what it's all about. So again, if you're here, and you don't even have to be a member of this church, if you're somebody who just wants to learn some things about the Bible, or maybe you're somebody that just got some questions about the Bible, and you just like to come down and sit down, you know, and you don't want to come on Thursday night to uh, ask me those questions, make an appointment. We'll sit down and uh, have time, we're God together, and I, I always, there's nothing in this world I like to do better than sit down with people and talk about God's Word. So that offer is an open-ended policy. You can always use that whenever you want to, and, uh, and that is, you know, how we learn the Bible along with what we're doing on Sunday and on Thursday. So this morning, we've been coming through, you know, and we're going to go into the book of Esther today. And uh, the book of Esther, without a doubt, without a doubt, is the strangest book in the Bible. I don't know if you know anything about the book of Esther or not. You know, a lot of times, if you have hung around churches, you know, maybe, or you've studied the Bible yourself, you pick up some things. But you know that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where there is no mention or no reference to the Lord. I mean, every book in the Bible talks about God did this or the Lord or they they talk to the Lord. In the book of Esther, there is absolutely no reference to God anywhere. There's no reference to the Lord anywhere. It's a book that seemingly, as far as the book is written is concerned, is totally void of any God or any concept of God. And that has led Bible scholars over the years, and I've I've read a number of their works over the years in, you know, learning the Bible and, and all the things about the Bible. And uh, I, it, that's led a number of men to write books to question the fact that Esther should be in your Bible at all. And that is so typical. When you can't figure it out, God must be wrong. See, that's the mentality we have today. I am so smart that if I can't see it, then God obviously had to make the mistake because, man, I am so smart and, and so brilliant that I don't miss anything. And, of course... You know, that kind of attitude won't get you much much from the Word of God. The book of Esther, without a doubt, 
is not only the strangest book in the Bible, but probably one of the most unique books in the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the premillennial view of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me restate that for you. We talked about the different viewpoints that people have within different churches and organizations about Christ's coming. And the premillennial return of Christ was the, uh, what I told you was the Bible believer's view. And that simply means that Christ is coming back, literally, visibly, after the tribulation period, at the second coming of Christ, to establish the millennial reign of Christ. And that is one of the key doctrines of the Bible. And if you don't get that right, you know what? You won't get much rest of your Bible right either. We showed you as we started these five books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalms, how that those five books really lay out for you the uh, uh, premillennial view. In fact, the book of Esther is the book that, that really brings it all together. You know, Paul, when he wrote to the churches, when he wrote to the churches on the issue of the second coming of Christ, and Paul is the, book, Paul is the writer we want to study. If you want to learn how the book goes to you, then you want to focus on Paul's writings. And we've talked about that before, because he writes with doctrine to the church. So when you want to study the second coming of Christ, you go to Paul's books, and when Paul deals with the issue to the church of the second coming of Christ, he talks about the fact that, as he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. And of course, uh, he likens to the coming of Christ to the times and the seasons. When you get over to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and a little bit farther down in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he likens this times and the seasons to a woman in travail. In other words, he's saying to us that the second coming of Christ and God dealing with all the events that deal with the premillennial return of Christ is like a woman with child, a woman that's going to have a baby. Now, he told us before, the writers without the Bible said that no man knoweth the day and the hour. You always have people who try to predict, you know, when the Lord's coming back. And all my Christian adult life, you know, I've heard the 1988 was supposed to be the big year, you know, and he was supposed to come back in 1988 and all of this stuff. And the Bible clearly tells you that no man knoweth the day and the hour. There is no way that anybody in his right mind would get up and set a date for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no way anybody who knows anything about the Bible would do that. But what Paul says is this, you may not know the day and the hour, but every believer, every child of God, everybody who was saved, ought to understand the times and the seasons because it's the times and the seasons. And that's an interesting thing, time and seasons. There's two ways in the Bible that you figure the second coming of Christ uh, down to a very close margin. And within the times and the seasons. One of them is the times in the Bible. The other one are the seasons. God gave us four seasons. And God gave us four times of the year to show us that things go in a cycle. And those things go in a cycle. And those psych, that cycle of, of, of the four seasons uh, brings us around and shows us that things die and they come back. And there's an end and there's a beginning. Hey, there's an end and there's a beginning to everything in God's cycle. But that cycle is eternal in everything that God does. The Bible talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, the winds go by a cycle. In Ecclesiastes, it talks about the water cycle with water vapor, how all the rivers run into the sea, but yet the sea is not full, and all through those things. If the Bible does anything clearly, it shows you that God operates in cycles. 
That's why the book of Ecclesiastes also said there's no new thing under the sun. That history always repeats itself because it always runs in a cycle. So when we come to the times and the seasons, Paul says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. He's saying to the church, I don't have to tell you about the times and the seasons, or I shouldn't have to. Because if you're in the Bible, and if you're saved, and you are a Bible student, you ought to understand totally and completely what I'm talking about today. And very frankly, the whole focal point of everything that you and I do looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week when we talked about those nine gates? And I told you gate eight and nine were double gates, the eastern gate and the horse gate. The eastern gate is the gate that Christ is going to go through when he enters in from the Mount of Olives at the second coming of Christ. That's Zechariah chapter 14. And the horse gate is the gate that they brought the horses in, and that is the horses found in Revelation chapter 19, the armies that followed him in white horses. Those two gates show us that the church needs to have a double emphasis on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because, as we already know, it is the theme of the Bible. And because it is the theme of the Bible, Paul says that of the times and the seasons of that period of time, he says, you have no need that I write unto you. And then he says it's like a woman in travail, a woman going to give birth. You know, every time a woman goes into the doctor and, and he says you're going to have a child, uh, they always give her a due date. And the due date, uh, you know, very few women uh, ever hit their due date. Some of them do, obviously. In any society where you've got millions and millions of people, somebody's going to hit her sooner or later. But the norm is most people don't. And uh, I promise you, you know, uh, if you do, your due date, you know, was May the 12th or June the 15th or whatever the case, you know, uh, that day for many of you came and passed. Some of you said, oh, it's not going to come to the 13th, it came on the 9th. And you don't know for sure when that baby's coming, but you know what? You as a mother who are carrying that baby, you may not know the exact time it's going to come, but you know that it's getting close. And you start telling everybody, don't get too far away where I can't get a hold of you because I really feel weird. And you know what? Everybody who carries this book with them should understand and know when it gets close. In fact, the Bible's such a book when God wrote it, that he tells us exactly where we are at in perspective to the second coming of Christ, no matter where you lived in church history. Because God has a job for every Christian to do. At every age of church history, and I've told you about this before, God has an issue that needs to be dealt with. Everybody in any place in church history that was a Bible believer and loved God and loved the Word of God, from the Word of God is able to figure out where they're at in relationship to the coming of Christ, figure out the issue that God has for them to deal with, figure out the prevailing spirit of the age they're living in, and then take the Word of God and successfully negotiate that spirit and negotiate around that spirit with the power of the Holy Spirit of God to preach the gospel and do the job that God has called you to do. That's what Paul means when he says, you have no need that I write unto you about the times and the seasons. That's what the Bible means in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians 5 when it talks about a woman in travail. I don't know the day and the hour that Christ is coming. I do not know that day and the hour. I do not know that. Nobody in the world knows that. But I am telling you this, based on what we're going to look at this morning, 
I can tell you, you better not stray far from home. Because the woman is paying to be delivered. And when I'm done this morning with this text and we come through some things and we look at this and we see how this fits together, hopefully if you have any kind of spiritual insight at all, you too understand where you're at in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a time in your life to be out of fellowship with God. This is not a time in your life to be away from the things of God. You are facing, without a doubt, the judgment seat of Christ. You are facing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a time for a child of God to be fooling around in the world, not fully focused on the things that God wants you to do. I'm giving you a forewarning that you are standing in the times and the seasons, and right before this woman in travail is going to be delivered. And, of course, that woman is the nation of Israel, as we'll see. So with that in mind, let's look at the book of Esther. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for all that you do for us. We ask you now, Lord, to give us a, a clear mind today. Help us focus on the things at hand and to deal with the Word of God through your Spirit. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now in the book of Esther, the book of Esther, there's some characters that we need to look at here and we need to define. And you'll want to put these in your notes as you go back in your Bible and lay all this stuff out. First man we've got is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. And in our story, and remember now, God tells you things through stories. The whole Old Testament is nothing but stories. We've seen that over and over and over again. And the stories are what God uses to show us what is taking place throughout history with the nation of Israel and what God is doing. Ahasuerus is the king of Persia at this time. In our story, he will be a type of God the Father. He is an absolute monarch. In fact, it's Persia from which we get the absolute concept of the rules, the law of the Medes and the Persians. How many times have you heard that and not maybe understood what it meant? And the law of the Medes and the Persians were absolute. In other words, I say this. Once a law in Persia was established, it could never be revoked. It could never be taken back. Once a law was put on the books, it could never be taken off the books. That's why the phrase of the laws in the Medes and the Persians are used today to characterize something that is absolute. And uh, somebody that is unmovable. Somebody that, that won't get off the spot that they're on because they are a diehard on what they believe. And we use that term today in, us, in our own society, but it goes back to King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, who was a type of God the Father in our story here, even though he was a Gentile king. And the time that he lived, he was an absolute monarch just like God, only in a human sense. Our next character is a lady. Her name is Vashti. Vashti in our story is the Gentile queen at the opening of this story. But she gets dethroned. She gets taken off the throne. And Vashti, being taken off the throne, is a picture of the end of the times of the Gentiles. And we're going to talk about that. I'm just giving you the characters. We're going to come back and put it all together. The next player is another woman, Esther. Esther is a Jewish queen. Esther will represent for us the theocratic government of the nation of Israel. Nation of Israel under theocracy in a relationship with God. She is a type of a woman found in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. Then we have another man. His name is uh, Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai will picture for us the Jew in the tribulation period who is hated and persecuted by the Antichrist. 
Then our last character here, as we begin to put this book together, will be a man by the name of Haman. Haman is one of your 18 types of the Antichrist in your Bible. And you remember I told you that there's 18 men in the Old Testament that foreshadow uh, the coming man of sin. Haman is one of those men. He's a type of the Antichrist. Now, the books that we have looked at here, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and the ones that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, Job and Psalms. These five books, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, these five books show you the times and the seasons. God has providentially put these books in your Bible to teach you. God uses everything in His Bible to teach you something about something. These order these books in the Bible with the content and the stories. As we've already seen, as we've come through it a couple of weeks ago, show you the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to give you an understanding of the times and the seasons. And what the times and the seasons have to deal with is God ending the reign of the Gentile nations. We talked about it, that in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the Jew goes into captivity. We talked about how that Jew goes into captivity twice. How he returns twice. How the first time he goes back, it's a picture, it leads to the first coming of Christ. How the second time he goes back, it leads to uh, the second coming of Christ. And what we have here in this book of Esther, what we have here is a picture of the reign of the Gentile nations coming to an end. And setting up the Jewish nations, which will usher in the events that we all look for in the Bible, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and will culminate to the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. This material is covered from Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, uh, uh, chapter 1 through chapter 22. It's talked about in Romans chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, and a thousand other places in your Bible. Now, that's how the book of Esther fits in. With the book of Esther, what we're going to see is we're going to see that a, and remember now, we saw in the book of Ezra, where they go back, just like they did in 19, uh, 1918. We saw in the book of Nehemiah where they rebelled, just like they did in 1948. Now we come to the book of Esther, and in the book of Esther, we see a Gentile queen being taken off the throne into the times of the Gentiles. A Jewish queen putting back on the throne the establishment of the nation of Israel, and oh my, all the other events that that we need to look at or found in this great book. And we're going to go through them here in just a little bit. But I've got to set some stages here, and I've got to define some things for you. Now, I said the book of Esther was a unique book, strange book, I think the word I used, because it doesn't have the name God in it. Now, here's why. Two reasons. Two reasons. And you need to learn this. These are very important. There are two reasons that are tremendous Bible concepts why the name of God is not found in this book. And it has nothing to do with scholarship. The first reason has to do with the nation of Israel itself. Now let me just talk to you for a moment, and while I'm doing that, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 13. What you're going to get today, among everything else, is a lesson on how the Bible is its own dictionary. How the Bible is its own commentary. How the Bible lays itself out and interprets itself how many times have you heard somebody say, well, you know what, you can interpret the Bible a thousand different ways. And that's true, you can. Somebody will say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, that can be true too. But I never take a private interpretation of the Bible because the Bible says the Bible's not for in private interpretations. I learned over the years that the Bible interprets itself. I don't have any right to tell you this means this unless I can take you to a place in the Bible where another verse shows you that that's what it means. 
That's letting the Bible lay itself out. Now, there are two reasons why God is not found in this book, or the concept of God, the name of God. And as I said, the first reason has to do with the nation of Israel, and here it comes. During the time of the Gentiles, during the time period that we have been studying, a time period that I showed you a couple of weeks back is a monumental place in history in your Bible that you have to figure out and know where it's at. During the times of the Gentiles, when God has turned His attention to Gentile nations, and God has taken a nation of Israel from the front burner, put them on the back burner, so to speak, and put the Gentiles up front, like the book of Esther, where the Gentile is on top, and then she gets dethroned, and the Jewish queen comes on. During the times of the Gentiles, God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. And the book of Esther represents for us that period of time when God is hiding himself from that nation. That that nation cannot find him. And it cannot find him because God purposely has hid himself from his own people because of their sin. You say, where do you get that from, Bob? You get it from the Bible. I'll show you. Matthew chapter 13. Now we know the book of Matthew lays out for us Christ coming to the nation of Israel as the king of the Jews. We know that. We know that in that book he comes and he presents himself to the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ to bring to them the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. And if you were to read Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 11, you would find in every chapter, in every chapter it deals with a different aspect of Christ presenting himself as the Jewish Messiah to the literal nation of Israel during the time period at the first coming of Christ. And you'll find where he, every chapter, as I said, he goes through and he fulfills everything that he's supposed to fulfill, and he says to the nation of Israel, basically, here I am, I am your Messiah. In chapter 12 of Matthew, they reject him. And they reject him by saying that the spirit by which he does all the miracles that he's doing is the devil's spirit. And at that point, the nation of Israel makes their official rejection of the Messiah. And then a strange thing happens in Matthew chapter 13 and continues on to Matthew chapter 25. Those, those, that strange thing comes in the form of 12 parables. There are 12 parables that have to do with the kingdom of heaven. Those parables are told in mystery form. And there's been a lot of spooky stuff about the parables. You can go out and you can find, you know, the spooky secret things of the parables, you know, and everybody tries to make it something because people like the supernatural. Even God's people like the godly supernatural stuff, which is no such thing. But we like that mystic thing, you see. Let me just bust your bubble for you. The parables aren't mystic about anything. The parables are nothing more than God taking the mystery of the kingdom of, of heaven to the nation of Israel and putting it in a mystery form that the nation of Israel cannot get any more light. Now that brings up a tremendous principle. That tremendous principle is, this is the reason why a lot of people today who reject the Bible, and by the way, when you reject the Bible, you reject God. This is why a lot of people today cannot get anything out of the Bible. They're in the same state the nation of Israel was. The state that they're in is, is once you reject the Holy Spirit of God and the book that He uses, you are up against a wall as far as getting anything from God because just as the nation of Israel, it goes into a mystery. 
Then you've got to find your truth from somebody else, somewhere else, Christian bookstores, Christian this, go to this, well, so-and-so's book's out, well, you ought to hear this guy, but you cannot go to that Bible and dig it out yourself. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. God help the man, God help the woman that cannot go to the Word of God and find out what the Word of God is saying about where they're at in life. That's Israel's condition. And in Matthew chapter 13 through Matthew chapter 25, we find that the kingdom who he brought to Israel, who he wanted in the first 11 chapters of Matthew, he presented to them, they rejected, and now it goes into parables. And the reason for the parables are found in, in uh, Matthew chapter 13. Read it sometime. Verses 10 through 15. He tells you why he puts it into parables. Because Israel's heart is hardened. They have grossed their hearts, waxed hard. They will not listen to God. So God takes that kingdom under the prophecy of Isaiah and puts it into a mystery form called the parables. And from this point on, God hides himself from the nation of Israel. At this point, God begins to take from them the truth, even though they get Christ dying on the cross, even though they get up to Acts chapter 7, there's some things that are transitioning there. As far as God's mind is concerned, as long as Israel's heart is hardened against His Son, they'll get no truth. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, which is the fifth parable, here is where you find out what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. Now, if you would take the time, and I'm going to save you the time, but you can look it up. Keep me honest. Don't ever believe me. I'm the biggest liar you ever found in your life. You got to check me out all the time. The word treasure, the word treasure will be found in the Bible defined for you as the nation of Israel. You'll find that Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Psalms chapter 13, verses 5, and it's called a peculiar treasure. Israel is the treasure. In our chapter, verse thir chapter 13, verse 38, you'll find the Holy Spirit of God tells you that the field is the world. In verse 37 of chapter 13, you'll find that the man here is God. Now what you've got here is this. The man is God who finds a treasure Israel, and because of their rejection, he takes that field, uh, that treasure that he finds in the field, the world, and because of their bad attitude of heart, the Bible says, he hideth. Write down Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 16, Isaiah 54, verse 8, Isaiah 57, 17, and you'll find among those verses where it says God hides himself from Israel. No question about it. No question about it. During this time period, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, up to, through the times of the Gentiles, to the times that we live in right now, God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. They cannot find him, and that's why in the book of Esther, the book that doctrinally covers this period of time that shows you and me through a story about a king who has a Gentile bride who dethrones a Gentile bride and then sets up a Jewish bride with all of the players in the right place, the Antichrist, Haman, Mordecai, and everything that takes place. 
you have a picture of the times of the Gentiles, and that's why the name of God, any reference to God, is not found in the book of Esther, the most unique book in the Bible, because during that time period, God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. Oh, that Bible's an incredible book. But yet at the same time, you will find in the book of Esther, just like you'll find down through history, that even though God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, even though you find no reference to the Lord or God in any way, you know what you find? You find God behind the scenes in every chapter. You find God behind every verse. You find God behind the very scenes of that book, orchestrating the events, working on people's hearts, orchestrating nations, orchestrating kings, putting everything together. And even though in this great book, you find that no mention of God, God is everywhere if you know what to look for. It is just like today. God today has hid himself from the nation of Israel. We live in a world just like the book of Esther that does not want the name of God associated with anything. We don't want it in our schools. We don't want it on our money. We don't want the Ten Commandments in our courthouses. We don't want, we don't want nativity scenes at Christmas. We don't want, well, I mean, I, everywhere you go in the world that we live in, nobody wants anything to do with the name of God. It's true in Israel. They have a form of godliness that is so far, if you know anything about the Bible, anything about history, anything at all, don't be fooled by the religions of Israel and all the stuff. It's all political. They are a million light years from God, as are most Christians in America. Now we find that even in this period of time which the book of Esther represents for us, where God is not named, God is not mentioned, just like in the book, he's behind every chapter orchestrating the events. God today, my friend, is behind the scenes and everything that goes on today. Everything that goes on today in this world, God is there orchestrating the events, bringing about the ups and downs of nations, kings, queens, presidents. He is setting the stage for the time for all for one purpose, and that is the time that he brings the nation of Israel back to him and he establishes the kingdom of heaven as he promised to Abraham. And I'm just telling you something. You can believe me or you cannot believe me. It doesn't make any difference to me. But I'm telling you something. When you lose the Jew in history, you lose all perspective in history. And I'm telling you, when you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, that Jew's told to go back. Next book, he goes back, Ezra. And he goes back like he did in 1918. Next book, Nehemiah. He rebuilt like he did in 1948. Now, here we are in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, oh, it, it talks about all the aspects of it. I mean, the book of Esther is a picture of the times and the seasons and the end of the Gentiles. I'll tell you what the book of Esther does for any Bible-believing Christian. It puts everything in perspective. It puts everything in perspective. You know, we're all guilty of this. Every one of us. Every one of us. If there's one thing that we as Christians have in common with the world, and we do, it is this that in our daily routines of Christianity, we lose perspective of what God is and what God is doing. The world has lost it a long time ago. They have no clue. God's people ought to be the one that have it because we have the Word of God. But even in that, the hardest thing, because we're human beings, we have emotions. And we feel things. 
and we hear things. And we have to make judgments and decisions and value judgments on the things that we hear. Let me say something to you. If you don't have an absolute standard in making those judgments, I told you before, your whole job as a child of God is onefold. That is to find out what God's opinion is from this book on everything in life and then make that your opinion. You see, let me tell you the first thing that you got caught up in. You still think you're an American. You're not an American. No, 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 no. The Bible says that once you became a new creature in Christ Jesus, old things are passed away, all things become new. You say, that doesn't sound very patriotic. I'm not talking about patriotism today. I'm talking about the calling God has given you. God called you out of the world. You may live in America, but you're no longer an American. You were born as a Gentile, unless we got some Jews in here. You were born as a Gentile. Your mother and father were Gentiles. You maybe all come from different Gentile nations. There probably isn't a true American in here at all anywhere. You all come from Europe. You all come from Ireland. You all come from Italy. You all come from Germany. You all come from various places. Down through your, your history, your family, you mix and match from everywhere, and you came over on a boat sometime, or your forefathers did, mine did, and here you are, and you're here today, and you think you're an American, when in actuality, you're a European. The real Americans are out there running the casinos over in Kansas City, Kansas, or trying to. The real Americans are Indians. Now I got another shocker for you. The day you got saved, you ceased to be an American. You're now a Christian. You say, well, I don't think that's fair. Hey, the Bible says if you're a Christian, the moment you get saved, now you're an ambassador back to this planet. I live in America. I was born in America. And the day I got saved, I ceased to be an American. God called me out. But he gave me the wisdom through a book to say, I called you out. You're no longer one of them. But I'm sending you back to them with my message as my ambassador. Yes, I live in America. You say, would you put an American flag out? Absolutely. She would say, would you, if your country went to war, would you fight? Absolutely. I'm not saying you don't follow the things and do what's right and, and, and be patriotic in that sense. I'm saying in your mind... You've got to separate yourself. You know what the problem with some of you are? You can't do that. You can't do that. You get caught up because you don't see it as God sees it. You, you think when Christ showed up, you know, that he came over there in blue jeans and a shirt when a sweatband had an American flag on the top of it, you know? No, 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 no. I, I, and when you understand what I'm talking about, oh, you understand the greatest concept and the greatest lesson in all the Bible other than salvation. And you know what it is? The greatest lesson in all the Bible, outside of you being saved and getting that message and being told that wonderful story and trusting Christ, the greatest message that you ever hear, the greatest concept you'll ever learn out of that is the concept of how God looks at, God looks at things. Next week, we're having a Republican convention. A couple weeks ago, we had the Democrats. Now, here's the deal. The Democrats think God's on their side. Republicans think God's on their side. The Republicans say, well, God wants us in because we're conservative. The liberals have a different concept of God. Well, God wants us in because we're more tolerant. Notice how I sound like John Kerry. That more tolerant. <laughs> you know, he had the same problem in World War II. Oh, yeah. We fought the Wehrmacht, Germans. You know what every German soldier had on his belt buckle? God is with us. They thought God was on their side. We thought God was on our side. And a hundred million boys 
were wounded and killed between World War I and World War II because they thought God was on his side. Truth of the matter is, God wasn't on anybody's side. You got to grab that concept. Oh, you want a shocker? You want one that'll drop your jaw and make you mad and make you go home and never want to look outside the window again? Let me tell you one. From World War I and World War II, 100 million Gentiles were killed, slaughtered in the Battle of the Marne, the Battle of Chateau Ferry, the Battle of this one, that one, everything over there, World War II, Pearl Harbor, Corregidor, everything, Normandy, everything else. 100 million Gentiles killed one way or the other, slaughtered one way or the other. And you know why God did that whole thing? Because he wanted to bring his people back to his land. And if you don't know that, you don't know squat about the Bible. Because the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that the Gentile nations mean nothing to God. I ain't kidding you. Isaiah 40, read it, 15 through 17. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28. In fact, the whole Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 48 says one thing. God could care less about any Gentile nation. He says they're a drop in a bucket to him. He says, you know what? He says all the nations are that are before him are as nothing. And here we are running around here. Well, we're on, we're on the political side over here, and we're over here, and God cares nothing about that. God doesn't care what man wins. He doesn't care what party you're a part of. He doesn't care anything. All that God is concerned of is that he is behind the scenes while we're running around like a bunch of little ants, playing our little game, doing our little things. God is orchestrating his people back to that land, and behind the scenes is setting up everything for the day that you and I have missed, the whole world is missed. It's not the day that Bush comes up and says, well, I got four more years. Or Kerry says, we show them. He cares nothing about that. He doesn't care about the Russians. He doesn't care about England. He doesn't care about Italy. He doesn't care about France. He doesn't care about Canada. He, they are nothing to him. He cares only about his people that he has brought back and right on the verge of making them a nation again the way they were in the Old Testament under David and Solomon. And everything else around it it's nothing but for God to use to bring that about. And when we lose our perspective, when the nations lose their perspectives, I mean, imagine anybody getting up anywhere in any Gentile country and saying, we are the greatest nation, the most powerful nation. We got a bomb load of nukes and biological weapons, and we are the greatest nation, but we're going to use those nations to bring peace to this world because we want to do what's right, and we are a nation of freedom. God cares absolutely nothing about that because I'll tell you, every time you talk about freeing somebody, it means 100,000 people get killed in the process. There's only one freedom that that Bible focuses on. And that's the freedom you get when you trust Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. That's the freedom that this world's going to experience when Christ comes back and puts an end to it. Everything else is just playing games. Why? We lost our perspective. We lost our perspective. And I'm telling you, the greatest lesson in all the Bible you'll ever learn after the lesson of salvation is the lesson of how God views the world and the Gentile nations. And you see, it doesn't bother me to say that because I'm not a Gentile. I'm a Christian. I got on the old gospel bus a long time ago where I saw where it was going. And I don't care about those things. This whole world doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I know what God's doing. I know where God's going. I understand the times and the season. I know where I'm at in this thing. I know where God is going. I know what God is doing. And I know that God, just like the book of Esther, cannot be found anywhere today. But he's behind every scene. He's behind every prop. He's behind every nation and every government. And he is orchestrating the thing to put it together to bring about the end when Christ comes back.
Right now as we speak, I'm not fighting anybody. I'm not mad at anybody. I could care less. It doesn't bother me. You see, when you really love God in that book, as Psalm 69 says, nothing offends you. I don't care what somebody else thinks. Why, across this city today, there's everybody in the world getting up there and they're talking about, well, let's all rally together. We got to get this guy in. Or we got to get this guy in. Everybody's fighting on the thing. And somebody say to me, Bob, what guy do you want? We want this guy over here. We want the guy that's going gonna, gonna to keep Christian conservative values for the family. Somebody else says, we want the guy that's going to be broad-minded and allow everybody in. And somebody says, which is right? Bob, what are you going to do? I'm going to vote for the guy that is going to bring the Antichrist in the next day, get this thing on, and get me to glory. Now, most of you think that's Carrie. I ain't too sure. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care who becomes president. I don't care what, who does what to who. I got some news for you. I've said it over and over again, and I don't know if you got it yet, but I'm telling you, boys and girls, it's over. It's over. We're in the last moments of the sands of the hourglass of God's timetable dropping through the hourglass, and God is coming back. Think I give a flip who's president? Vote the guy in that'll get the Antichrist here and get me out of here. Now, you see... No, the average person, pastor across this congregation, would think I was nuts for saying that. My God, the last prayer in your Bible. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What are you reading? You say, well, what about all the unsaved people? I can't say anything for the unsaved people. I just want to be with him. And I know this, every unsaved person in this world had their chance. I don't know. I mean, I'm not getting into that this morning, and I don't care. I just know this. I know what God's looking at. I know how God is figuring the thing, and I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You better get the right perspective of where you're at, because if you don't, oh, I remember in 1988, last perspective. You know what? In 1988, remember, some of you don't remember this. Some of you weren't even saved then. Some of you weren't even born then. In 1988, they were so sure in the Christian world that God was coming back. They had rallies where they passed out. Christ, I still got the book. Christ returns in 1988. They had everything orchestrated. And you know what God's people did? They went out, organized masses campaigns, organized great campaigns within churches to, to win everybody they could to Christ in these last moments. Now we know he's coming back in this year. Everybody, come on, rally. Let's get him in. The fields are white in the harvest. Let's go. Let's go. No, no, no. You know what every Christian did? You know what the big joke was afterwards? All the Christians without ran up their credit card buying whatever they wanted because they thought they weren't going to have to pay for it. Does God have a sense of humor or what? Those 25% interest Christians are still working it off, man. I love it. I love it. You know what? God told me today that he was coming in the morning. I got to be honest with you. I wouldn't do anything different the rest of this afternoon than I've done all week. I would get really nervous and really excited. And find somebody to take Ham, Shem, and Japheth. 
you take them, Pam? <laughs> well, you're not going to be here, okay. Just checking, you see, just checking. That was a trick question. Just wanted to see if you passed the test. You passed, you passed, you passed. Oh, you'll take them? Oh. <laughs> the book of Esther is an incredible book. Within those nine chapters, you have God dealing with the nations to bring back and establish the Jew. You have the rapture of the church. You have the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the rise of the Antichrist. Everything just like Revelation chapter 6, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 says. It's incredible. Watch, watch, watch this. Chapter 1. This is incredible. Don't leave Matthew yet. But we're going to come back. Just listen to this. You'll never keep up with me anyhow. <laughs> chapter 1. You know what you got in chapter 1? You have Vashti. She's the Gentile queen. She represents the Gentile nation during the time when God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. A time when God turned the world power from the Jew to the Gentile nations. And the Bible lists those nations. We studied it in 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings. We studied it in 2 Samuel, how the nation of Israel went into apostasy, and finally God had enough, and he whacked them, and he sent Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib down, and he ripped out the kingdom of heaven. And now the times of the Gentiles, when Gentile nations run this world, typified by Vashti, a Gentile queen who sits on the throne under the dominance of an absolute God, an absolute king, Ahasuerus. And then one day, in chapter 1, the king says, I'm giving a feast and a party, and I want you to come in and show all the people your glory. She refuses. She says, no, I'm not up to the task. I'm not coming. Well, Ahasuerus gets angry. And what he does, he takes her off the throne, and then he looks for a new queen. When she loses that throne, it's a picture of the Gentile nation saying to God, we're not going to do what you want us to do. We're going to do our own thing. We always have, we only will. And God says, fine, time to come off. And then he goes down through there and he finds a woman. He finds a Jewish woman. Oh, hey, if you think I'm kidding you, when you have time this afternoon, come down in chapter 1 and verse 13. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that little phrase that Paul talks about, the times and the seasons, right, in Esther. You come down to the next verse, verse 14 in chapter 1, you know what you'll find? You'll find there are seven princes that stand before the king day and night. And you'll find seven spirits of God down there with the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 11, Revelation chapter 4. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Gentile queen won't show God's glory. So Ahasuerus comes down and dethrones her off that throne, takes her off the throne, end of the times of the Gentiles. And then chapter 2, a Jewish queen comes to the throne, Queen Esther. Queen Esther pictures for us the Jewish monarchy of the 12 tribes under that theocratic concept of God as their king. Oh, yes. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. What does it say there? It says, virgins. Virgins. Oh yeah, your little bookmark on the back here, the household of God. Virgins. Tribulation saints. Got a red S on it. That's 
tribulation, Jews, wherever you find it in the Bible. You find it in Matthew chapter 25, the last parable. I told you it was 12. Matthew chapter 25, 1 through 10. The parable, or maybe it ain't the last, but it's the one I'm talking about here, where you got the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. A Jewish queen comes to the throne. The Gentile queen gets taken off the throne. A picture of the time of the end of the Gentiles and God turning his attention to the nation of Israel to reestablish them as the nation that they once were. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but this is what Matthew chapter 24 is all about. Now we want to turn there. Because a Jewish queen comes to the throne, a Gentile queen gets dethroned, there are virgins connected with Esther, and all of this deals with, and all this is explained in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Now, I don't know what you know about Matthew chapter 24, but here's what you got. The disciples come to Christ, and they have one question for him. <clears throat> A lot of controversy during this time. <clears throat> A lot of things have been floating around, and they have one question in verse 3. What is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And from verse 4 to the end of the chapter is the answer to that question. And during that time, you'll find that everything in here deals with the nation of Israel. You'll find that everything in here <coughs> lays itself out in such an incredible way. Well, let me just read it to you. Now, keep in mind, their question is, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the world. And in verse 32, he starts his answer. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, know ye that the summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see all of these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass to all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, <clears throat> but my words shall not pass away. But of that day, here it comes, and of that hour knoweth no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as it was in the days of Noah, great key, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now here we have a parable. This parable is the answer to their question. Their question was, the same question you may be asking, same question the whole world is asking. When is going to be the end times and what will be the sign of thy coming? And here's what he says. Here we go. The fig tree. The fig tree is the nation of Israel. The fig tree is a nation of Israel that you find from Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, another parable that God put in the land. He planted, he planted in the land like a fig tree and he expected that fig tree, Israel, to bear fruit. Israel didn't bear fruit. Israel didn't bear fruit at all. She went after other gods. We've already studied it. Times that the Gentiles come in. This is why in Mark chapter 11, after the rejection of Christ, Christ is walking out of town, and in Mark chapter 11, verse 13, he sees the what? The fig tree that is barren. Picture of Israel, and he curses that fig tree. Picture of the nation of Israel. From that point on, for 1,900 years later, that tree, Israel, the fig tree, is barren because God has hid himself from them. 
And after 1,900 years, when every historian had written them off, when every history teacher laughed and scoffed when you brought up Israel, that every bona fide historian laughed and made fun of that would never be anything, the scattered vagabond Jews, 1,900 years later, on May the 14th, 1948, she put forth her leaves. Verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branches are yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. Israel became a nation in 1948. That's verse 32. That's when the fig tree putteth forth her leaves. And he said at that time in 1948, the summer's almost over. Summer's almost over. Fall's coming. And winter's coming. And then spring's coming. And everything comes back to life in springtime. He says the summer is nigh. <clears throat> Likewise, when you shall see all these things, one of the greatest prophets in the New Testament, know that it is near, even at the door. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but just let me extend this for you a little bit. Bible, times and the seasons. I don't know the day and the hour. I wouldn't even pretend to. If you go out of here and say, well, that Bob Alexander, he's just a date setter. I haven't dated any date. I'm just telling you, times and the seasons. But oh, don't let me stop here. I believe my Bible. Paul told me that I should be ignorant of those times and the seasons. Now, if you are this morning, don't get mad at me. In 1948, that prophecy became a fulfillment. That nation, that fig tree, put forth leaves, but no fruit. Then I go over in Song of Solomon, chapter 2. You know what Song of Solomon, chapter 2 is? It's a picture of the rapture of the church. There's no question about it. You couldn't miss it in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, if your life depended on it. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, it's a picture of the bridegroom calling for the bride, saying, rise, my fair one, and come away. And you know what he says when the bridegroom says to the bride, come away, you ought to read down there. You know what he says? He says that the fig tree has green figs. Why, well, in 1948, she put forth her leaves. At the rapture of the church, she's got green figs. When she goes through the tribulation period, seven years later, and Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ, the fruit is now ripened, and it's ready to eat. You find it in Revelation chapter 6, verse 13, and Nahum chapter 3, verse 12, and about 40 other places in your Bible. I'm telling you, I don't know the day and the hour, but I can tell you the times and the seasons by the prophecies that he wrote there about the nation of Israel. And I've told you before, you lose the landmark of the nation of Israel in history and you're lost. When I was growing up in Christianity, years ago, I started reading books on history because I knew I had to learn history. And once I got the Bible settled in my heart, I began to digest, and I'll never forget the, the greatest or the least greatest or the worst book, however you want to say it, the, the, the biggest voluminous history book that you can get is 12 volumes by a guy by the name of Will Durant. Will Durant wrote the history of civilization in 12 volumes. And at the end of those 12 volumes, he had the nerve to write another book that said, the lessons we need to learn from history. You know what those 12 volumes were? One of them was called Comparing Caesar and Christ. Another one was Oriental Civilization. Another one was about the Renaissance. Another one was about the, uh, the, uh, the Great Age of Reason. One whole book was devoted on Voltaire. 
how he was a great mind. Twelve volumes. Twelve volumes. And at the end, he brought it all together in one book that said, these are the lessons from history. And when you read that, you understood that old Will Durant, who's probably dead and burned in hell right now, and he was a bona fide historian. I mean, he wasn't some fruity guy out there that just wrote what he wanted, got his conspiracy theory off the Internet. No, this guy was the, the man, a bona fide historian who wrote on the history of civilization that couldn't find God if he had a laser beam and a flashlight. And at the end of his volumes, after writing 12 volumes, 4,467 words, I counted them, at the end, he didn't understand anything about history. Somebody says, are Will Durant's volumes on history any good? They're excellent. What do you mean? If you want to shoot your 22 pistol in your basement, the volume on Voltaire and Reason will stop it. They will not go through those two. In those sense, they're invaluable. <laughs> if you want a little tart, do it when your wife's not home. <laughs> Open the windows, because it smells bad afterwards, and that's, that's not the aftershave you want to pretend that you're wearing, cordite gunpowder. <clears throat> but if you want to target practice, and you don't want it to go through the wall and kill the neighbors, Will Durant's any volume put together with another volume will stop that bullet. That is the greatest thing I've found for them. Now, on the other side, of the Christian side, you've got the seven volumes by William Schaff. He writes on the, on the history of the church. His are equally worthless. It takes five of his to stop a 22 bullet. In both cases, neither guy knew anything about history, couldn't find God if his life depended on it. In fact, Schaff, who's unsaved, writes his volumes on church history like God is dead. No, no, no. If you want to get the perspective on history, don't get Will Durant. Don't get Schroff. Get God's perspective. And I'm telling you, he said that there's a fig tree that's going to bear fruit. And he says, when that fig tree puts forth its leaves, you better watch that baby's coming. And then he says in verse 34, oh, you're going to like this. This will ruin your lunch. This will keep you up tonight with acid reflex. <laughs> Verse, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the, I don't know the day and the hour, but Paul said, I'm not to be ignorant of the times and the seasons. And he just narrowed it down to the times and the seasons, telling me that in 1948, that set forth a generation. That anybody was born in 1948, however long that generation goes. And there's a number of generations in the Bible, you can't figure it out. But I'm telling you this, the person, the last generation of 1948 won't die before all these things. And you ought to read them, tribulation period, millennium, second, all these things are coming to pass. It's over. It's at the doors. It was end of summer in 1948. When I got a Bible that tells me in 1948 she put forth her leaves at the rapture of the church, she put forth green figs, and the whole concept is to bear fruit, and then in the millennium of the second coming of Christ, according to Revelation chapter 6 and Nahum, she bears the fruit, and then Matthew 24, 30, uh, 24, 34 says, this generation shall not pass, this generation, the generation born in 1948 will not die off till all these things be fulfilled. Now here's what you got. By one of the greatest books in the Bible, Esther, where God is not mentioned. A book that lays that thing out in such an incredible way. You know what he says? He says that probably in 1918, 
in God's mind, the times that the Gentiles ended with a Belfar Declaration. And God from that point on doesn't care about what's going on. He cares about you and me as the body of Christ because we have a job to do. But he didn't care about this or that. He doesn't care about the Gentile nation. He has one thing on his mind and that isn't the Republican convention next week nor the Democratic one or whether Kerry rode a swift boat or a slow boat. It's not going to make any difference to him. He is focusing on his people bringing forth fruit. And he orchestrated behind the scene when you couldn't find God anywhere. He orchestrated them coming back in 1918. Them rebuilding in 1948 where they put forth their leaves. And at the rapture of the church, they've got green figs. And when he comes back, those figs have ripened and now Israel finally bears fruit. Vashti's off the throne. Look what happens in chapter 1. A feast in the king's garden. Seven days, chapter 1, verse 5, with all the family in attendance. There's your family of God in the book of Ephesians. Read it down there in chapter 1, verse 6. Fine linen, righteousness of the saints, book of Revelation. Gold, silver, precious stones, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You got the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It says, royal wine. Remember over there in John chapter 2, verse 1, when there was a wedding, wedding in Cana, a marriage in Cana on the third day? Remember that? Third day, third day, third day, second coming of Christ, anytime you find it. And you know what? He gets that, Christ turns that water to wine, and everybody says, this is the greatest wine we've ever tasted. We've never tasted anything like this before. You know why? That's a picture of the second coming of Christ, and the water he turned to wine was a picture of the wine you're going to need at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's why it says royal wine, and that's why that marriage in John chapter 2 was a picture of the second coming of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. All that in chapter 1. Vashti off the throne, a Jewish queen off, rapture the church. Then in chapter 3, after the rapture of the church, seven days, seven nights in the king's garden, a man by the name of Haman shows up. Type of the Antichrist. You know what Haman does through chapter 3 through chapter 9? He, he pretends to be Mordecai's friend. But in actuality, he hates Mordecai and all the Jews. And chapter 3, verse 6 says that he has a plan to kill them all, exactly like the Antichrist does in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, according to 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I mean, I'm telling you what. And when you come down through in chapter 3 through chapter 9, this whole story is nothing but rolling around Haman trying to set up Mordecai in a trap to get him killed and try to wipe him out because Haman's a type of the Antichrist. Mordecai's a type of the Jew in the tribulation period. And you know what happens? finally happens in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10? Exactly what Psalms 9 prophesies. The Antichrist, typified by Haman, gets caught in his own trap. That's why when you go through your Bible, you want to always be careful of the word snare, the word net, in the book of Proverbs, Psalms, and Ecclesiastes. The Antichrist sets a snare, a net, for the nation of Israel, and he gets wound up taken in his own trap, in his own snare. I'm telling you, the book of Esther, the reason why God is not mentioned, the first reason, is because it's dealing with the nation of Israel. It's dealing with a period of time that God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. <coughs> and he shows in the book of Esther <coughs> everything you need to understand about where we're at. 
He shows you a Gentile queen coming off the throne, a Jewish queen coming on, end of the times of the Gentiles. He begins to show you the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24 of the fig tree putting forth leaves. You find the wedding, the picture of the rapture. You find the fine linen, the gold, silver, and precious stone. You find the family in attendance. Everything that takes place during that period of time. And then after that, chapter 3, up comes the man of sin, Haman, the persecute Mordecai, type of the Jew in the tribulation. Incredible. Incredible. All in a book that according to the greatest scholarly minds in the world today shouldn't be in your Bible. So much for scholarship. Now the second reason. First reason had to do with the Gentiles <coughs> and God hiding himself from the nation of Israel. <coughs> second reason. Is this same time period when God dealing with the nation of Israel? This same time period that deals right before the rapture of the church and from 1918 on up to all this time when God's orchestrating the nations and putting out the Gentile nations and changing the land, geographics of the land and putting up nations and kings to bring that nation back at the expense of the Gentile nations. We also know that this is a picture of the Laodicean church period. We know that Colossians chapter 1 through Colossians chapter 4 is a picture of Laodicea. Five times it's mentioned in that book. And we also know that that book pictures that God has been replaced with philosophy. God has been replaced with tradition. God has been replaced by the rudiments of this world. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 it talks about this Laodicean church period which just happens to fall historically from 1900 to the time period that we live in. Even Philip Schaff got that right. We find Christ thrown out of his own church. They don't need him anymore. They don't need him anymore. And we find that during this time that uh, it's hard to find God. It's hard to find God. The book of Revelation says that chapter 3, that the latest in church, they have no need of God anymore. They've got everything that they need. They don't need God. And they, they've come to the place where they've thrown God out and they're orchestrating just like the nation of Israel. They're, they're pretending and having a great time, but nobody reads the Bible anymore. Nobody has a relationship with God anymore. God's people are walking around like they're going to live for another million years. They have no idea of the times and the seasons. They have no idea of the urgency of this hour. Because we live in a time where God seemingly isn't anywhere, but you know what? He still is. He's in a book. And if you get in a book, you'll find him. You'll find him. A time when you don't see God seemingly doing anything. And you scratch your head and you say, is that Christianity? Is that Christian music? Is that the way Christians are supposed to be? Is that what churches are supposed to be? Well, they talk about God, but they don't have any answers. How come I don't have any any peace inside? How come, how come they told me to do all this and I lost my kids? How come this and that? How come this? nobody? It's a very confusing time. And yet I'm trying to tell you this morning, see the thing from God's perspective. In a time you don't see God doing anything, you know he's behind the scenes because God gave you a book and that book is filled with promises. See, I don't need to see God in this day and age, even though I know where to look for him to see him. I can, I can cut through the stuff because I know what God promised. And there's another thing in here that I want to say before I'm finished and I'm just about done that the book of Esther does for you. There's going to be times in your life as a Christian and you, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. If you don't believe anything else, believe this. There's going to be times in your life as a Christian when you can't find God. That the time is going to be so black, the heartache is going to be so bleak, that you think God forsook you. I'm telling you, it's true. There'll be times in your life when the circumstances are so graphic that your situation seems so hopeless. And you don't, you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you haven't heard from God. 
I don't know what the deal is. Maybe you think you got yourself in a mess and God's just going to come down and undo the mess. It doesn't work that way. But you get out there and you get extended and you say to yourself, where's God? And you start to doubt yourself and you start to doubt everything about yourself and you start to struggle with your relationship with God. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, just like the book of Esther, there'll be times in your life, just like in America, just like with the nation of Israel, that you can't see God. And I know that he's still there because I have a book that he wrote me that the promises are good even when the frail mind and the frail emotions of Bob Alexander cannot see him. And I've said it to you a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand times again before Jesus comes back. Never doubt in the darkness what God has given you in the light. The promises of the Word of God are for you. They'll keep you. You see, the problem is this. Most of God's people have such a superficial relationship with God to begin with. They don't have a relationship with God based on the promises. They have a relationship with God based on what they heard their preacher say, or the last book they read, or the weekly quarterly, or their daily bread, or some other thing. And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying those things will not take the place of your personal relationship with the Word of God and the promise of God in your heart. You have got to have it in the day and age that we're living. I'm telling you right now. When you look around and you, you, think, you, think, you think everybody's running around afraid of the next terrorist attack. Let me tell you something. The nation of Israel have been living through terrorist attacks for the last 1,900 years. What makes this country any better? You better get set for it. There may be some. There may be some. Don't take it personal if God kills you. When you get to heaven... Go ahead and chew him out if that's what you so desire to do. But I'm telling you, you better get your head screwed on straight and realize where we're at. You think God cares about 9-11 and the Twin Towers? We talk about all the things and all, and there are some tragic stories. The most tragic stories to me is the fact that a lot of people probably died and went to hell. That's tragic to me. But I'm telling you something. God is in the business of bringing his people back to that land. And God just doesn't give a flip about Gentile nations and whether we do or whether we don't. If you want to get God's favor, get saved. That's the best thing I can tell you. If you don't get saved, roll the dice, baby. Roll the dice. God is on a mission. God is on a course. God is driving the bus. You either get on his bus or you walk. It's as simple as that. And his bus is going to the New Jerusalem. And I don't know about you. I'm going. I'm going. And I'm telling you, there will be times in your life when you can't see God, just like in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned. But I'm telling you, the greatest comfort book in the Bible to me in those periods of time is the book of Esther. Because I see God, even though he's not mentioned, behind every chapter and every verse, orchestrating the things for his honor and glory. So when the times come in your life, and let's face it, if his son, you see, that's another perspective we learn, or we never learn. We, don't, we think because we get some little adversity or some little thing happens or something happens tragically or whatever the case may be that we're the only ones that ever experienced that. You know, why we, you know why God's people don't deal with adversity the way they need to? Because deep down inside they never have really understood how God gave up his own son on a cross and the agony God in his heart must have felt when his son was paying the price for you. And I don't mean this cruel and I don't mean it bad. But I'm like, why are you any better than him? Why am I any better than him? Why should he suffer and I not? Why should he go through the things that he had to go through, the, all the agony? There isn't anything in your life. And we'll see it next week when we get it. Could we get into the book of Job next week? You'll see it. You'll see it. You know what? There's some things that we only understand better through suffering. And I don't know how else to tell you. 
Somebody asked me the other day, a little baby died. And it was a very tragic thing, nothing connected with us. But somebody called me on the phone. And I try to be kind and gentle because I know in those circumstances and situations it's hard. And I don't, ever, I, 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 I don't ever think bad of anybody that struggles in those things. But I try to help them. Because there, everybody says it. Why would God do something? Why would God take a little baby? Why would God do this? Why would God do that? Well, I don't understand why God does what he does, but I understand this principle. I understand. And the person asked me, they said, you know what? Why would God, why would God, why would God do that? My answer was simply this. He said, well, they said, God could have done a miracle. And I said, you know what? God could have done a miracle. But you know, when you think about it, God could have done a miracle about his son and, and saved us another way instead of having him die on the cross, couldn't he? But you know what I've learned through life? Some things, some lessons are best learned through death. And that's a hard thing to say, but you know what? You and I would never identify with Christ and be saved if it wasn't because of his death. That's why the wisest man that ever lived said in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's better to go a house of mourning than it is the house of feasting. He knew that. Because some lessons can only be learned by you feeling the pain of somebody else dying. Because the Bible says that that forces you to look deep inside yourself and to really take your own reality check where you're at. Sure, God could have done it anyway. God can do anything. The bottom line is this. It's those kind of promises that get you through when nothing else will because there's no worse time in your life than to think that God has left you or forsook you when you go through the deep times of your life. But the book of Esther tells you, you know what? You're never alone. Just because you can't see him, I got a book that tells me he's there. And because of that, I'll never doubt in the darkness what he gave me in the light. But I know even when I can't see him, it's me, not him. There'll never be a time out of my mouth, can't speak for you, where God will be wrong and I'll be right. I'll be wrong and he'll be right. And when I can't figure it out, I won't say, well, that shouldn't be in there. I'll just say, I'm too stupid to see it. God is sovereign and he's a great God. And he wrote a book. Why? If everybody understood the Bible and everything in it, we'd all be as smart as God. If God ever, somebody said, why did God write a book that there's so many things you can't figure out? Because if he wrote a book, if you figure everything out, then you'd never walk by faith, you'd walk by sight. There's some things God won't give you in life, folks. You know why? Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to dig in there and get the promise that God says he'll come through for you. That's the book of Esther. Doctrinally, what a great book. Shows me the ends of the times of the Gentiles and why God has hid himself from the nation of Israel. Shows me why I'm living where I'm living today. The most exciting times in all the history of the world as far as I'm concerned. The time when we're right there before the fig tree has put forth its leaves and boy, the, the figs are turning green and man, they're almost ready to go. Trust him. He'll never leave you nor he'll forsake you. And whenever you can't find him, wherever you can't see him, no matter how dark it gets in your life, no matter what the circumstances are, know this. If you're his child, He's there. He's there. He's there. You want to be a promise keeper? Forget going to the meetings. Just get in that book and keep the promises he gave you. He gave you a book that's filled with promises and we are to be promise keepers. We are to take those things and put them in our heart and write them in our hearts and make them our promises. Because that's the only thing that will get you through
and the darkness of the time that we live in. Well, I got some good news. He's coming. Hey, he's coming, man. Some of you don't like that. Some of you that kind of talk makes you sick in your stomach. That's your problem. Let me tell you something. I got nothing planned today or tomorrow or the rest of my life that isn't worth canceling if he wants to come right now. It's okay with me. Okay with me. Because you know what? This whole thing is his. He's on course. You know, we're going to look awful stupid when we get on the other side about 10 million years and look back and we actually see all of this stuff that we fretted and fought over back here. <laughs> and we see how stupid it was. And you get a look at that grandeur out there, boy, and you're going to see it. And we're going to look at each other and we're going to say, boy, we were stupid, weren't we, Jimmy? <laughs> And Jimmy says, I sure was. And I said, yeah, but I saw it all the time. I just wanted you to know that. Yeah, right. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do for us. And we love you so much. And oh, Father, we thank you for this great book. Oh, we look around and we see all the great things that you've done and all the great things you're doing. And yet they can't be seen unless you have this book. God, we know that you're right 